Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future doctors. Thanks for joining us today as I get to interview a dear old friend and an amazing physician. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Leith States. Dr. States serves as the Deputy Director of the Office of Science and Medicine and Chief Medical Officer to the Assistant Secretary for Health in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Prior to becoming a physician, Dr. States spent nine years on active duty as a Navy Medical Officer. He received his medical degree from UCSD School of Medicine, completed residency in an, and an MPH from Loma Linda University, and earned an MBA from George Washington University. He is board certified in preventive medicine. Welcome, Dr. States, and thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to share your story because you're very different from all the other doctors that we've had based on just, just introducing yourself, right? So it's exciting, and I hope that with our listeners, you inspire them to become physicians, but your journey and your path is different from many. So I think there will be people who um, will relate to you and a lot of the young high school and college students, which is what our audience is mostly composed of, or people who were in a different career and then they've decided to change and maybe pursue medicine as well. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and when someone says that we are old friends and dear friends, she absolutely means it. We went through the fun of med school at UC San Diego together. I don't know if that was fun, but... <laughs> it was something. Um, it, it created a bond and relationship. And she's one of the people I value very much in terms of the medical circle I know. Oh, thanks, Leigh. All right. So first, um, just because of what you do right now as your profession, I wanted to start out by asking you what it's like to be a deputy director and CMO and let our audience know what, what it is you actually do. So that, that's, that's a, always a difficult question to answer. Uh, let me, let me uh, uh, approach it from this way. So think of coming from a family where no one is in medicine, no one has been in healthcare. They already have a hard enough time knowing what a doctor does on a day-to-day -day basis. So trying to speak to my mom, to cousins, to siblings, and tell them what it is I do on a daily basis, they have no concept. And the same thing for my medical colleagues that have decided to stick with clinical medicine and are still doing the white coat bedside direct patient care. I work in health policy. I work in regulatory affairs. I work as an interface that acts on public health and medical priorities that are tasked to me from my immediate boss, who is the Assistant Secretary for Health, but also largely the HHS Secretary, Javier Becerra, and the White House and Congress to a certain extent. So things that have been notable for me, let me give you some type of rhythm for a regular day. Um, I might take on a number of podcasts. I might do a couple of interviews that provide commentary on an area of interest, whether that's artificial intel intelligence and applications in vulnerable populations, or it could be cannabis. It could be regulatory law and FDA oversight on certain elements that might look 
differences between marijuana, the flower versus CBD versus synthetic cannabinoids, Delta eight, Delta nine questions like that. And I could be somewhere off on another tangent doing maternal child health. I can be doing climate change and environmental justice. There are implications where I get tied into much of the telehealth policy considerations around what stays and what goes and how do we make the right reimbursement and payment approaches to understand the trade-offs between doing well based on the standard approach to clinical evidence data collection or where can we start to impart real world evidence that's more representative of the entire population as opposed to a small capture that's typically more well off and white in nature or kind of the white adjacent you know cultures we might think of so mm-hmm. That's the a very quick smattering of topics. I know that's overload for a lot of folks, but it's all couched from the federal perspective, the levers we have within HHS, how we interact with the rest of the federal government, and very importantly, how we can support, augment, or amplify what happens at the state, municipal, and local levels. Um, so I'll stop there. Hopefully that wasn't too much. Yeah, no, I think it's it's fine. That's like you basically have your hands in a lot of pots depending on what is on the table and things that need to be addressed. Exactly. But on a policy level. Well, it's good because uh, it's nice to see that they have someone from a diverse background. That we can jump into that and I know there are some questions later on that maybe will Yeah. get us there. So I will gladly sit on that for a little bit and then we can open that can of worms. All right. Did you practice any clinical medicine before moving into this position or did you go directly after fellowship? No. So, so you'll remember that I went straight into active duty in the Navy after medical school. So I went into an internal medicine internship, completed that year at Balboa at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. And then I did a series of years as what's called a battalion surgeon. So I served as essentially like a general practitioner and essentially provided all medical care for a population of about 1,500 sailors and Marines that were in an infantry Mm. battalion. Um, So what that effectively meant was that I was in charge of the force health protection for keeping that battalion healthy and ready to support a mission wherever. And these were all individuals from 18 to their mid-40s male Marines that had spent a career or starting their careers with infantry. So that was done for the first four years after my internship. I did subsequently go to preventive medicine training at Loma Linda and continued to provide clinical care there from all public health and prevention aspects and touch points that you would see at a public health department, right? So STI, HIV, travel, obesity, FQHC engagement, tobacco cessation, substance use, other addictions, related touch points across a number of like the federally directed health programs. So Medicare, Medicaid, FQHCs, and the VA. Mm -hmm. After I left that clinical training, when I continued in the Navy, I still was doing clinical care, but it was mostly in in addictions and more like a crisis mental health capacity. After I left the military, so for the past five years at HHS, I have not done direct patient care. I still carry an active California license. I still carry active board certification. And I could, in theory, you know, go set up a shingle in a VA hospital or a military hospital and practice anywhere across the country. Um, Obviously, I can't practice privately 
in my state of residence right now because I don't carry the license, but my skills are, are a little blunted, but hopefully still there. But for the first 10 years after I was doing clinical medicine, at least if not five days a week, at least a few days a week. And then for the past five, I haven't. And then if I recall, while we were in medical school, you already knew you want, this was your path, right? You wanted to go ahead and join. How did you come about to that, that you were going to make this decision? Was it because of the loan repayment or what was your driving factor? So in my family, and this all speaks specifically to joining the military. My family has a long history in the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, a lot of the men on my side were the first black Marines to go into the Marine Corps and, and be integrated. And, you know, uh, there's a strong contingent of folks that have my name that are in Pennsylvania that are all retired Marines and they were all very well regarded. So I had kind of a, a high bar to follow. And the only way I was going to serve with the Marines as a clinician was by joining the Navy. So that's why I joined the Navy because I knew exactly where I wanted to go with the Marine Corps. So the, the loan repayment was helpful, but I came to the program late in medical school. So they only paid for one year of medical school. My primary goal was just to go with the Marines and go into combat operations, which I successfully did to the, to the good or to the worst for my, my self, ability to provide self-care and then for those around me. But uh, I, I did succeed in that dimension of it. The benefits in, the, in hindsight have been a lot more than I really could have accounted for going into the military. Um, and the way I can relay that briefly is when we were going through fourth year med school, when we go through went through internship, we were responsible for one of one. We didn't really have any leadership at that point. We were struggling to maintain our patient panel, right? Going from CCU to the ICU, to the med wards, to ER, to whatever outpatient clinic we get a little breather on. And I immediately went from that and having a state license in hand to the next day being responsible for the training, education, and credentialing of 60 corpsmen, medics, a PA, and an independent duty corpsman, which is a step-down version of a PA in the Navy. Not only that, I was responsible for the health readiness for combat operations and in garrison, meaning in, in peacetime kind of operations at home for all of those Marines and sailors. So every buck stopped with me. It's as if I became the CEO for the health system overnight. I was the medical director for this entire population overnight. I became the CMO overnight after having not done that ever in medicine. So it was a very quick change and a very quick expectation of le leadership, which drives people two directions, right? So it will either drive you towards humility and finding the answers from the people that have knowledge, or it will drive you to put a mask on and just fake it and fake it and fake it and probably become a nervous wreck and eventually have bad outcomes, right? Thankfully, I chose the former and relied on a lot of my junior enlisted corpsmen and senior enlisted uh, medical officials, medical uh, department staff to bring me up in how to lead well and to do it in a way that was out of service and not out of a need to declare myself as the expert at all times, right? Because there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills and a lot of lessons that can be learned that aren't going to come from a single entity. So viewing leadership as a kind of a team sport and knowing how to, to lead through example and an augment of 
what it is I already brought to the table as a clinician was a really helpful lesson for me to have early on, like within the first one, you know, first month after um, leaving internship, I was already on a mission in India with a group of Marines, making sure they didn't, wow. they did not, you know. That's what you call jungle medicine, right? <laughs> all jungle warfare. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was all jungle warfare training. And you sink or swim at that point, right? Yeah. You just got dropped in the middle. And, and that's the thing is that it's okay, it's okay to sink, right? Yeah. So I, I, I took a lot of lumps. I mean, I, the, the amount of failures I had in my first two years was absolutely staggering for me. Having, in, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not as if I came to medical school with this false impression that I was the smartest person in the world. I'd already taken a lot of lumps getting to that point. But we always impress ourselves with how much we can still learn and fail. But it's that capacity to bounce back that's resilience, right? So, and you can use it for good or for, for bad. And uh, thankfully, um, over time, I've been able to at least use most of it for the better. No, it sounds great. And I feel like a lot of times, I mean, you, you only did an internship year. Usually we do at least three years of training before you're let out, right? Yeah. So you only had one year under your belt. Year. And yeah. as I can recall, after your intern year, you still did not feel very confident with everything. So I can only imagine what how stressful that is. And you know, you have a lot of lives on your hands, right? Yeah. Um, and considering the environments that we went into, that's a lot of responsibility, lots of responsibility. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't have all the resources that we would have here. No, um, though I wasn't an actual surgeon surgeon, there were plenty of field procedures that were done. I'm sure. You brought up about how you ended up going into wanting to serve because of your family. So I want to kind of just go back and if you can talk about where you're from, what your upbringing was like, who was... Dr. Leith before he became Dr. Leith. So I'll give every, because so, all of uh, the the audience there is probably like, what is this guy's background? Nobody ever knows. My, my dad is black. Um, my mom is Mexican and Navajo Indian. So I grew up with my mother in Compton and North Long Beach, California. I grew up as a single child, but I found out much later that I have multiple half siblings spread across the country. So there are some interesting dynamics around, and you all may may or not may not be familiar with ACE scores just yet, like adverse childhood events, and the way we interpret what happens to us and internalize it from an early stage. The earlier the trauma, the worse off it can be in terms of a a risk for downstream badness in life. We'll say so. Early exposure to domestic violence, substance use, alcohol use, across you know family of origin lines. So you know dad's side, mom's side, the whole thing, and even in the nuclear home, right? So taking that and attempting to make sense of the world and find a safe space, um, I generally did not have a good handle on how to live life well or with abundance. So I ended up living a small life for a long time that just kept me safe. And a lot of times that meant not performing like I should, getting in fights, you know, getting picked up by police and, you know, just, you know, doing the things that most people, most men in my community would do. So I actually got a couple good kicks in my behind midway through high school that kind of jump started some action towards seeing what could be not, not medicine. I, I wasn't the lifelong, I'm going to be a doctor and had a little like, you know, doctor set. Well, what'd you think you were going to be in high school? 
I honestly had no aspirations. Okay. I didn't have any aspirations until my best friend at the time uh, was diagnosed with a pediatric cancer. It was a soft tissue cancer called desmoplastic small round cell tumor. It was a sarcoma that was very well known as one of the more aggressive variants of Ewing sarcoma. And uh, while he went through his initial rounds of chemo, that became my first exposure to medicine. And just prior to his diagnosis, I had this inkling to become a pastor. So I was actually thinking of pursuing going through like a biblical studies course of, of studying in undergrad. I had things start to change for me as I saw some of the dynamics with interface with the medical medical teams during his treatment. Ultimately, he did go into remission, but a follow, the following year, he did succumb and he passed away ultimately. And that was kind of the decision point in my mind to pursue medicine. And by that time, I was already started in undergrad and uh, switched from biblical studies over to biochemistry as you know, my usual pathway into to medicine, right? So that's how my kind of medical pursuit started. But I would say it was just a an application of wanting to serve others that allowed me to see what medicine was, or at least healthcare. Uh, but I still had no idea what I was doing. I knew that you had to be a pre-med and that biochemistry or biology was a good fit for that. But I didn't have anybody in my family that had been a nurse, a CNA, a doctor, a therapist, nothing. Did you have any college graduates in your family? My mom was the first graduate from college in my family. Oh, okay. So she kind of broke that cycle, right? She was the first one. Yeah, and she, she grew up in Compton as well. And she was the first Latina to go to Carleton College in Minnesota on a full scholarship. Oh, wow. So she's a, she's an impressive lady. Do you feel like that helped you when you were in high school decide, okay, my next step is to go to college, even though I don't know what I'm going to do? Yeah, my mom was pretty diehard. You will go to college uh, or you will, whatever, you're going to do something. Um, but she 90% preferred college, college, college. And part of that was, I think, that everyone in in the family, when she was growing up, told her college didn't matter. Like, you're just a woman. Go get married and do the usual Latina thing and, you know, take your husband in the home and go from there. Um, but she didn't do that. And she was very clear that she did not want me to just sit and stagnate in Long Beach and Compton to, to go, go do something. But I think I still did not have any confidence that I would amount to anything because I'd mm -hmm. never been challenged like that. I had not built the self-efficacy or the agency that I actually mattered in this in that way, that I had anything really demonstrable to provide value. Um, and it took a long time, probably wasn't even until I was in the Navy that I finally started to buy into that to a small degree. Um, and not through like a cockiness or anything like that. It's just the idea that your narrative can be more of success rather than focusing on your guilt and shame or what the negative sides of your narrative are. It all adds to mm -hmm. one story, but you know, there are other, there are ways to perceive it that, that allow you to do well for others because you view yourself kind eyes. Right. Um, so that's, I think the, the somewhat complex, uh, way to college that I took. 
how did you make that leap then in college to getting into medical school? Did you have someone mentoring you, guiding you, or did you just do it like we did? Like, well, let's see what happens. <laughs> I will say that the world was a lot different when you and I were applying to med school. I remember I still had the uh, like the paper, the hardbound version of that little that med school book. So I picked out nine schools because I could not afford to apply to any more. These people that apply to 30 schools. It's like, I, I need to be realistic. I put two rich schools on there. One of them was UC San Diego. And I had a good core group of mentors that supported me very much in making moves towards actually getting into a medical school. I, I had a different experience. I went to a very small liberal arts school because I was originally a biblical studies major. So mm-hmm. I was one of two biochemistry majors that graduated in my year. So as you can imagine, there was less resources available for pre-meds, but there was more attention from the existing staff. So I was able to do some mock interviews. They had like the whole, you know, the, the old MCAT test. And so I just remember doing those over and over and they were all hard copy and I had to go to the library and do things like that. But like studying for the MCAT, I mean, that stuff was like all on my own. I didn't take a review course. I didn't have, you know, some money for that. And then trying to do the flights to the interviews, that was another huge barrier in consideration. So the whole process, I had a like a little village of folks helping me, but it was all on the cheap. But I think that support was really helpful in bringing me to a, a point where I felt like I had a had a shot if I got the interview, right? Because if the mm-hmm. interview and you don't come off like you have no bedside manner or have no interpersonal skills at all, you you got a fighting chance to get in there. So got four interviews and thankfully the interviews went well. And I remember the actual day I got accepted into UCSD because I came off of the wait list and Dr. Kelly called me and I was in my lab because I'd taken a year off to do pediatric cancer research at CHLA. I remember just breaking down completely because I I still had no, I still was very anxious and hesitant about the whole prospect. Like, oh, great. I made it here. What am I going to screw up now? So that's that self-sabotage, right? It in part was related to the imposter syndrome because it was like, oh my gosh, they're going to find me out this time. Oh no, I got one. I got my reach school. Yeah. Oh, I got lucky. Pay for it. it wasn't because of anything I, I came did. <laughs> I'm just in this spot because somebody better didn't want to take it. Yep. Um, and that's kind of the narrative I started. And reflecting back on that now, I know that uh, that really impacted how I interacted with the medical school experience. I don't think it helped. It was, it was certainly negative. And one of the other negative things, and, and this I think will probably resonate with some of the, the listeners, is that I, I remember the orientation day, there was some demographic slide they put up. And there was one black student, there were a handful of Latino students, and then there was one Native American student. They counted me as a whole Native American, they counted me as a whole black person, and they counted me as one of the Latino students. So it made me feel even more like, oh, they they tokened me up. They just I, I am I am a I am token times three. So it wasn't it, it didn't do much to help like affirm a positive narrative for me. And I'm sure, you know, there's always so much it's just in our perception of what we're seeing, but I ran with it. 
Yeah, you feel singled out. I, I actually remember that. We were all sitting by each other. And I remember when that demographic came back. And then he was like, that's me. And I remember you t- telling me, turning around and telling me, oh, my goodness, they cont- they, they counted me three times. <laughs> and that's always, like it, I mean, I've changed. You know, I can look at it differently now. But man, that that really messed me up. And I, it wasn't until like in you know, the last few years I've been able to say, yeah, that was not good for me to see that. I've always made a joke out of it. I'm like, that wasn't a joke. It just added to it. Yeah. So what was like medical school like then for you? Like while you were going through just, you know, carrying all these thoughts like from high school and then going into medical school? You know, and and you may feel similarly about this. So I feel like and it's probably true for a, a, a majority because. UCSD was uh, more of a malignant institution, meaning they, they really had a reputation for creating an environment for medical students that wasn't healthy. There were a lot of what we call gunners, right? So folks that were pretty cutthroat with their grades and how they wanted to score. And that went across from like our preclinical years to our clinical years. Add on top of that, I think some of the issues that, that, were imparted through perception of like the medical staff at the hospitals and then from patients themselves, like walking around with the short white coat on being called an orderly and things like that. It, you know, that stuff added up. Like I'm pretty sure I'm a medical student and I don't feel offended by the comparison with someone else that's doing, doing their job and kind of getting meaning and worth out of it and, you know, making their way. But there were like another group of med students right there in white coats that were white skin and singling me out here. So those stories are still, I mean, I, I talk to young folks that are coming through as like White House fellows that are younger and they have those same stories. And these are folks that have graduated in like 2016, 2017, but it, it's still by and large the same story. So I think, you know, that baseline understanding of myself and how I internalize my place in the medical world Mm -hmm. was reinforced over those four years. Although there were moments where I didn't feel it, where you act, it's like you get those moments that just help you to keep going on. Right. So it's not as if it was devoid of happiness or something like that. There was more for me to hang my hat on from the negative perspective than maybe the positive. And I think when you go through that on the flip side, it says, this is why I need to be here. This is why we need to change this because you are treating patients that look like me. So it, it also becomes, it could become a very motivating factor, but it's hard. It's hard. Did you ever ask for help or did you talk to anyone while you were in medical school or did you just kind of keep it to yourself? Not a word. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of the issue with the medical environment we were in at the time, I think. And, you know, even probably today, maybe to a lesser degree, but we were under the old work hour requirements. We were under very archaic ways of approaching medicine, even in the way the ed- education was administered. We were one of the old holdouts from the, you know, the problem-based or the situational-based care that had, you know, the clinical and preclinical interspersed together. I remember feeling like I was in Patch Adams or something, right? Like that intro scene. Um, yeah. <laughs> like we were in a old med school from the South or something like that. So I think, you know, the resource availability, I know that, you know, the spotlight has in terms of the the more general national conversation on mental health, behavioral health, suicidality, 
substance use and associated factors, it has bled into and thankfully been amplified at the for healthcare providers, especially at the ad with the advent of COVID, right? Pandemic really, you know, where you know it exacerbated and, and showed a, a spotlight on a variety of issues. One of them has been around burnout. Thankfully, I think those the provision of resources and the capacity for students to feel like it's okay to say something's wrong is is increased mm-hmm. markedly. I just did not feel the license to do so when we were in training. Yeah. I think as a medical student overall, you feel that way, but I feel like it's amplified when you are a person of color. Certainly. Because you feel it and it's it's nonverbal. A lot of it is nonverbal and I feel with everyone that we went to medical school with that comes from being a minority background, we all felt very much and we all can we always it's so funny that you tell me you recall that chart. All of us recall it. Interesting. All of us recall it. I still keep in touch with some of the other med students and we always talk about that, right? But we all still recall it. And it's unfortunate not much has changed, which is why we're doing this podcast and doing other projects as well to help increase those numbers. So maybe we can get uh, minority students to fill up an entire row (laughs) in an auditorium. I did want to ask you just uh, going now back to what you do now, what what would you say are some of the struggles you have now as an as a physician and what you do now? What do you like about it, what you don't, or just overall some struggles that you have with it? Well, I would say, let me start with what I like about it, because as, as it relates to what I do like about the job, um, I've been in this position, well, a variety of positions here at HHS for five years. The capacity to serve as a public servant and do it through a lens of population health is what I endeavor to do as a preventive medicine doctor, where you find the value and the impact in what you can do through the levers that affect community health and population health, as opposed to at the bedside, which I still, I miss, I miss greatly back to having some mix of clinical time, but where I've seen the capacity to have the greatest impact and the ability to do the most to help bridge good ideas, good programs, and important policies that need to go across administrations is where I am right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a career official, so I'm not what's called a political appointee, meaning that I wasn't appointed by the administration that's in power. I continue to just take a oath to the Constitution, and I serve at the leisure of whoever the president may be. But the nice part about being a career employee is that I don't find myself without a job at the end of each administration. So my focus and the real measure of success for me can be on the true metric of how much impact does what I'm doing have for the American people, or I should say, or people living in America, right? So that's, I think, one of the true benefits of, of being in the senior position I'm in. The other piece is, I think, you know, for folks that are in a mindset like me, where I really value the capacity to continue to learn and be curious and be a lifelong learner, like we're always told in medicine is what we are, this is the best place for that. I am not an expert on cannabis regulatory law or DEA 
action on the CS, the Controlled Substances Act, and what that means and what they do after receiving recommendations from the FDA and the NIH and, and HHS. It, it creates a situation because of my role. I need to learn about that and get smart quickly and learn how to interface with the individuals that know most and are going to do the greatest good to move things forward. And that's one example of every topic that I focus on. There's probably around a very small set of issues where I am truly like a, a, a subject matter expert, one of which I think I've worked on since I've been here at HHS. The rest, it's all a pickup game, but it all was set up well by medical training and residency training and kind of just the subsequent need to learn on the fly and find a way to make it work. Um, so it does bring together my military background and the medical background really well. The one thing I'll say is uh, maybe a downside, and I, I don't even want to, it's, it's more of an opportunity in my, my mind is when I look around the landscape for chief medical officers at HHS in headquarters element, and then looking at the rest of the operating divisions and staff divisions that, that we have. And when I say that, just for definition's sake, Operating and staff divisions are things like the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, HRSA. Um, those are probably the ones you all have, have heard of or at least somewhat familiar with. It may not surprise you that there are no men of color in chief medical officer positions. Actually, the one that I knew well has since departed and gone over to private sector or you know, he went to an academic appointment. There are quite a number. Of the, there's great representation for women in general. And then for minority representatives, it's increasing. But there's been a real difficulty in recruiting men. And I, I don't, I have not been able to get enough protected time to look at that from a like research standpoint, a sociological standpoint, having some capacity to look at it as a formal question to get an answer to. But I think it's an important one. And it's probably one of the things that irks me most because Every meeting I'm in, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, I mean, I am the only male doctor of color in the room speaking to policy considerations. And it's problematic. And it's not to say that I don't come with my own biases to the table and I have to check those as well, but it's an entire perspective and viewpoint that does not get included and considered. So many times I end up coming across as the angry guy because <laughs> I call out things in a way that I'm really, I'm really nice right now, but I tend to come across as the, the not so nice person because people tend to suggest things that make no impact on anything other than, you know, chasing a outcome metric that doesn't really matter for people on the ground or people's lives. Right. I mean, just because you measure it doesn't mean you should track your actions to it. Yes. One of the big, and I, this is one thing I measured. I uh, actually mentioned in a call with Amazon this morning was the problem sets that have the thorniest answers are in areas where we don't have good data to track. Mm -hmm. So that, and, and there's a variety of reasons that that data is absent. I mean, we either don't track it because demographically we haven't cared to track those individuals and characterize the scope of problems or the reality of problems or the even potential for where there could be blind spots in the delivery of care or human services in the country, right? And that's always problematic. And I think it's a true, you know, philosophical issue for how we address problems in a, and allocate resources, right? 
just because it's not a clinical trial and we don't have that type of data or we don't have, you know, large volume, large perspective studies with good study design out of a reason, you know, out of a respected institution, there's no reason that we need to discount the value in an action just because we can't prove it in terms of an ROI. And that's where, you know, things like bolstering community capacity to get grant funding comes into play. Because if you're a small CHW workforce and you're trying to write for a grant from HRSA or from my organization, you're going to be blown out of the water by the way they have their grant making machinery, right? I mean, they have people that are dedicated to this. It's their whole job to write grants in a way that gets the money. So how do we effectively with administrative and engineering controls change how we do business? Right. And so I think that, you know, while those wheels take a long time to turn, that's been an encouraging thing that's been changing in my tenure at HHS. Not saying it by any means that I'm the, the cause of it. There's been a lot of administrative push and prioritization for equity in the way we do our business rather than just throw money around or use that term as a buzzword. Right. Those are a couple of things about the position itself. Um, well, I'm glad you're making some noise there. I know you need more people there, but <laughs> to back you up, but you're making some healthy noise there. <laughs> noise is good. It's the good trouble. And then just the last question I usually um, like to ask everyone is, if you can go back to your younger self, what would you tell mm-hmm. yourself? I know that one's deep. <laughs> no, I thought about this one earlier. The most important one is to be comfortable in your own skin. And that's something that I know people say pretty frequently, but from the standpoint of having an identity, being confident in what you bring with regards to value and worth in this world and having the capacity to share the true version of yourself in a way that allows you to magnify the most good in whatever role you're put in. That's what I wish I, you know, we spend so much of our lives just living in a shell with a limited scope of life and what it could be. But that capacity to just own being who you are and step out, not boldly, but just, you know, just to let people see who you are probably would have spoken volumes for me early on. Number two, I I think, and this is something I heard today actually is, and I really believe it because I'm not the smartest person in the world. It's enthusiasm is worth at least 25 IQ points, holding everything else equal. The person that's enthusiastic, that wants to see change, that wants to be part of the team, that wants to manifest that change is going to be desired, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, we can equate enthusiasm with passion too, right? And the only way you get to what you're passionate about is if you can have that emotional intelligence capability to understand what makes you tick, what makes you drive. So it also gets back to just knowing yourself, right? You're not going to be authentically enthusiastic about something unless you've taken the time to know what gets you going, right? And people generally can pick up on when you're just trying to talk the talk. So those are two. My my third one, I think, is that, and we spoke about this a little bit with with swimming and drowning and just not having it together all the time. We are always our worst critics. And when it comes down to it, people appreciate honesty and failure rather than running and hiding it. So I think Honesty and failure with yourself and with others is a truly important one. Um, I've seen it be quite helpful with my career progression. Mm-hmm. I want, I'll be 40 in October, and there's no way I should be 
in the role I'm in with the age I'm at, with the clinical experience I have. But I think through a process of like, I mean, falling flat on my face multiple times over, and maybe we can have another chat on that at some point, <laughs> growing that capacity to seek out people that help me be better at what I'm not good at now. I find the people that already do well at the deficiencies I have, and I not latch on to them, but I try to always, I try to get out of my own way as much as possible now. Yes, that is great, great advice, definitely. And I, I do, I agree. You have to, I feel the the real you comes out when you're vulnerable, right? And it's, it, and that's how we grow. It's hard to show it. <laughs> and I would think in, you know, I, I grew up in ocean sites so around a lot of military families. Yep. So it's really hard <laughs> to show, but um, I think overall it's very important for personal growth. Well, thank you so much um, for being here today and for taking time out. I know you're super busy, um, but I know like someone's going to hear your story and don't be surprised if they're like, oh, can we connect with so-and-so? Because we've had listeners that listen and um, because there's not enough mentors, there's not enough people that, you know, to become um, doctors or, or people of color. Don't be surprised if somebody reaches out. Thanks for joining us today. 